Welcome to the Veterans of Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Convention, from war making to peace seeking, walking the talk about transformative justice as we move from a blaming and shaming culture to one that encourages cooperation, understanding, forgiveness. That was Susan Schnall, president of Veterans for Peace, welcoming us to the Veterans for Peace online conference. And we'll be sharing more of that conference, including small portions of the powerful keynote address from Reverend William Barber. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast are on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. Okay, so while the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring Voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us. And I think Veterans for Peace and all the voices you will hear clearly personify that. Now, on with the show. Today, we're going to be talking about the uh, Veterans for Peace uh, annual conference, and we're just going to hit the tip of the iceberg because the conference was um, really great. Um, tons of great uh, speakers, tons of great um, sessions and work groups and whatever. Um, so we just want to give you just a feel for it. Harvey, what did you think? Did you listened to a lot of the conference. I think it had a real Pacific, Pacific kind of focus like uh, Obama pivoted to the Pacific. I think the conference pivoted to the Pacific. And that was the theme of the conference, right? From war making to peace seeking. Yes, but it didn't say Pacific seeking. So <laughs> well, <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of, a lot of the, things, a lot of things were about the, about our, our issues with the Pacific. And we're going to, we're, we're going to start off with, a clip from the conference uh, with an introduction from Ann Wright and then two poems from a Korean War veteran. Okay, that's And great. his name is Jack, uh, Jack Doxy. Now, the Korean War, three years, a very intense war from 1950 to 1953. Uh, 36,000 U.S. alone were killed in that three-year period. And we, if we think the Vietnam War lasted 15 years and 55,000 were killed, three years in Korea, a very, very intense time, and over 5 million people on the Korean Peninsula, Koreans, Chinese, UN forces. It was a huge, terrible, terrible war. Uh, let me start by saying it, it was 1952, and I was 21 years of age. And I was in my first year of college at St. John's University in Brooklyn, uh, New York, when Uncle Sam sent me a letter telling me that they could not win the Korean War without my, uh, without my help. 
Uh, after completing my training, they put all of us, all of us soldiers on a, a troop train and we traveled to California where we boarded an old World War II troop ship. Every evening I went up on deck and I saw the vastness of it, nothing around, no fish, no, no ships and things like that. And I thought if I had to go 14 days in one direction, to meet my enemy, then possibly this is not my enemy. I did write a poem so that I wouldn't forget the experience. And my uh, uh, sergeant that I reported to uh, was a, a typical sergeant barking out orders and uh, very, quite frankly, mean-spirited. Uh, and uh, here is the experience I had with this sergeant. I entitled it, The American Flag Between My Teeth. I was young when I went to war, carrying the American flag between my teeth. I went 14 days on the open sea to kill an enemy I never met. I wound up in a trench with the monsoons pounding. I got tired as hell and put down my weapon. My sergeant, the one I just talked about, barked out at me, don't get your weapon wet and unusable, unusable, for if you do, I will court-martial you. Do you understand that? And I said, sergeant, yes, I do. He went on to say, it's hard as hell to replace your weapon, but trust me, you can be replaced in a heartbeat. I dropped the American flag from between my teeth and quite frankly, I never did retrieve it. That was uh, awakening up all for me. I thought it was interesting, the choice of those words that you can be replaced in a heartbeat. Isn't it interesting that the sergeant believed that an inanimate object like a weapon was worth more than a young kid confused and terrified. One episode stood out in my mind. Now this one really affected me badly. We were overridden by the North Koreans, but after some time, we regained the hill. The carnage left from this, that, that incident will haunt me to this day. I captured this in a poem as well. Here once again is that a poem. And I entitled it, I saw myself in my enemy. They ran over us and took over our position. Americans and North Koreans all died within seconds. I searched through their bodies and found on all letters from home and pictures of family. And, and it struck me. I saw myself in my enemy. Oh, oh yes, the color of their skins was slightly different. The shape of their eyes was not quite like mine. Oh, but so much more was just like me. Like a thunderbolt, 
it struck me. Never again will my country convince me that others are not like me. Because you see, I saw myself in my enemy. Pretty powerful. Indeed. And, you know, to, to get that perspective, and I guess what he went through, it was easy to get that perspective, you know, that close. So, um, you have the same stories about Iwo Jima and the Japanese. Yeah. Letters from families. Right. Home pictures of their families. And pictures. And I'm sure there are same stories uh, from Vietnam. Who knows? There might be same stories from Afghanistan and Iraq and wherever. I'm sure there are. So, the the conference then had quite a not only a Pacific uh, focus, but a youth focus. And there was a number of, of sessions that were managed by uh, young people. And so one of them was about the climate. And there was so much, so much to be interested in the one about the climate. They had three young speakers, but I wanted to focus in on Lindsay Kaskarian who gave us some really, really interesting uh, new statistics, new perspectives. So here's, here's that clip. Uh, as people on this call know, the United States has by far the biggest military and military budget in the world. Um, so, and is, uh, is, is uh, the largest historical emitter of uh, fossil fuel emissions in the world. Um, so we have a distinctive and unfortunate place in the world. So I first want to acknowledge that the context of this moment is that the United States um, last year brought troops home from Afghanistan, which ended the United States' longest active war in our history after 20 years. And it was also the first war in the United States recorded history where at the end of a war in bringing troops home, we saved not one single dollar on our military budget. The first time we've ended a war and haven't cut the military budget by even a single dollar. Um, so that's a that's a significant moment in Biden's budget request um, for fiscal year 2023, which will begin on October 1st. And from there, that budget, uh, it broke down defense and non-defense, so-called defense and non-defense as it usually does, but it also broke down and these are in heavily quote, heavily in quotes, security and non-security. And in security, it included the Pentagon in war, it included the Department of Homeland Security, which includes our immigration enforcement systems, the Coast Guard, and other militarized parts of our federal government. It included Veterans Affairs, uh, except for the medical part. It included the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons, intelligence, foreign relations. Those were considered security. Then, it, and that accounts for almost 60% of the budget request. So it's not just more than half, it's about 60%. If you then look at what they included as non security, they included in non security shelter, public housing, housing affordability, public health public education, community investments, everything else was considered non-security. So clearly they have this definition 
almost precisely exactly backwards, that this budget request, President Biden's Democratic budget request, calls for more than 20 times as much for military research and development as it does for renewable energy and energy efficiency. Now, I'll know that this was prior to the enactment of the Inflation Reduction Act, so that number wouldn't be quite as bad now. Um, but that's still a terribly striking figure, given that that was just earlier this year. And of course, as many folks here also already know, the Pentagon is the world's single largest institutional user of fossil fuels and emissions. And source of fossil fuel emissions. Um, it emits more than entire countries, including Sweden, Denmark, and Portugal. It's operating in so many places so heavily all the time. Uh, and that is an inherently um, heavy fossil fuel usage. Uh, it's not something that can change unless the US military changes its uh, mission and changes its definition of what means national security for the United States. This is just a, one example. Um, one, there's one military jet, the B-52 Stratofortress, that consumes in one hour about the same amount of fuel as the average driver uses in seven years. Um, but the U.S. military spends, it's been estimated, about $80 billion every year to protect the world's oil supply. Um, and that's even before, that doesn't even include the cost of the Iraq war. That's just the U.S. military's routine, um, normal operations. So. It accounts for a huge amount of the money that we're spending on the military, and of course we're defending entirely the wrong thing. The US and China are the world's biggest emitters. We need both of us to be on the same page in order to solve climate change. That is just, it's a mathematical fact. China and the US both have to be a part of this solution. And the more we create enmity between us and the less we're able to coordinate about solutions to climate change, the more dangerous the climate change situation will get. We knew, we knew to Department of Defense, the military was the biggest emitter of uh, carbon, but she brought out some new information. And I like the way she put it about the secure versus not secure part of the budget. <laughs> And it, yeah. it, it, it struck me, first of all, with the amount that we spend on the so-called secure part, and meaning 60%, six dimes out of every dollar, uh, and the fact that they also refer to education, uh, healthcare, infrastructure was... as non-secure. <laughs> Shelter. Shelter, not secure. You ask anyone you just happen to meet, you can ask them, do you have any concerns about your security? They're not going to be talking about China and Iraq or anything else. They're going to be talking about how they're going to feed their families or take care of the sick, take care of their sick little. What's going to happen child? if they get sick and they don't have insurance? Well, that's part of the youth movement part of the conference. And to continue with that, um, they, had a, they had a segment about NATO. And of course, NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And so in their discussion of NATO, where do they focus? The Pacific. <laughs> and here is Kyle Kajihiro talking about his home, Hawaii. Most of the Earth's population falls within the U.S. Indo-PACOM 
area of responsibility. And that headquarters is located in a little base called Camp Smith, uh, just above Pearl Harbor in the hills there. Um, and so we're the, the head of this monstrous apparatus uh, in this region. And um, on the ground, what that looks like is about 142 military installations or sites, they call it, uh, encompassing about 240,000 acres of land. Uh, about a quarter of the island of Oahu is under military control. And most of that land are stolen lands of the Hawaiian kingdom. They come out of the government and crown lands that were taken at the time of the overthrow and annexation. Uh, and so they're still contested till today. Um, and I'll get into some of the lease issues coming up. But um, first I wanna just talk about RIMPAC. So Anne mentioned that we just ended in August, between July and August, uh, the RIMPAC exercises uh, took place in Hawaii, largest multinational military training exercises in the world. 26 countries came here, um, training in the ocean, in the sky, under the sea and on land. Uh, they, they had, uh, a, for the first time, uh, drones and um, uh, unmanned uh, uh, ships that they were testing out. They did a sink exercises where they, they sunk, I think, two or three ships off the coast of Kauai. Uh, they did various kinds of amphibious invasion. And so from our perspective, you know, seeing all of this, it, it looks, it re-traumatizes people as an invasion that never ends, right? This is, this is all reenactments of invasions and uh, projections of future invasions and future wars. So the, the, they're practicing for the future war that might happen primarily about China, right? This is what is happening today is like they're practicing that war with China. And the other thing that's going on is they invite uh, militaries that come here who have really spotty or, or um, really horrible human rights records. For example, Indonesia, which was banned from getting military aid for many years for the massacres it committed against East Timorese are now back every year at RIMPAC. Uh, they're engaged in genocidal actions in West Papua right now. Uh, we have the Sri Lankan military training here. Uh, they've been engaged in atrocities against the, the Tamil fighters in Sri Lanka. Uh, we have Israel here and they, they're, they're practicing, you know, techniques of uh, warfare that are used against uh, occupied Palestinians. And so, um, you know, Hawaii becomes implicated in all of these wars uh, overseas. We, we are a victim and we bear the, the brunt of a lot of this training and the environmental and cultural social impacts, but it also implicates us in the, the uh, violence that's done against other people. Um, there has been resistance against RIMPAC going back to the 80s when the Protect Koho'olawe Ohana uh, protested against the bombing of Koho'olawe and got some of the countries to pull out of the RIMPAC exercises but recently they've been building up again. And so we have a, a cancel impact coalition. Now it's called Core Futures, a campaign of Hawaii peace and justice. And we're gearing up for the next two years in 2024, uh, Festival of the Pacific will be in Hawaii at the same time or around the same time. And we're hoping we can have a big convergence of people from around this region to show stronger opposition to the RIMPAC invasion. From there, we heard from a young lady, Monica Flores, as she read the plea to stop RIMPAC from the Pacific Peace Network. The Pacific Peace Network and its allied organizations call for the cancellation of the dangerous, provocative, and destructive international Rim of the Pacific, RIMPAC, naval war practice, and for increased citizen pressure for a demilitarized pan-Pacific zone of peace. RIMPAC naval war practice, the largest naval war maneuvers in the world, will take place off Hawaii and the west coast of the US from June 29th through August 4th, 2022. 
At RIMPAC 2022, over 25,000 military personnel, 38 ships, 170 aircraft from 26 countries will practice war simulations engaging enemy forces. RIMPAC, coupled with expanding U.S. military capability in Hawaii, Australia, Guahan, and other Pacific nations, increases the likelihood of armed conflict between the United States and China, either by design or accident, with unthinkable consequences for the peoples of Asia, the Pacific, and the world. Please endorse this call to action. Pacific Peace Network will share this petition and call on legislators of each participating country to cancel RIMPAC. RIMPAC dramatically contributes to the destruction of the ecology and aggravation of the climate crisis in the Pacific region. RIMPAC war forces will blow up decommissioned ships with missiles endangering marine mammals such as humpback whales, dolphins, and Hawaiian monk seals, and polluting the ocean with contaminants from vessels. Land forces will conduct ground assaults that will tear up beaches where green sea, green sea turtles come to breed. We reject the massive expenditure of funds on war making when humanity is suffering from lack of food, water, and other life-sustaining elements. Human security is not based on military war drills, but on care for this planet and its inhabitants. 2022 RIMPAC includes military forces from Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Denmark, Ecuador, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Israel, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, Netherlands, New Zealand, Peru, the Republic of Korea, the Republic of the Philippines, Singapore, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Tonga, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Eight of the 26 RIMPAC participating countries are members of NATO. Canada, Colombia, Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, the UK, and the US, while four are partners of NATO. This means 45% of RIMPAC participants have NATO ties, demonstrating that NATO is becoming a Pacific military force. The Pacific Peace members currently come from countries across the Pacific, including Guahan, Jeju Island, South Korea, Okinawa, Japan, the Philippines, the Northern Marianas Islands, Aotearoa, New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii, and the United States. It, they're both in the Pacific, but the Pacific is huge. But there you have those two people really worried about RIMPAC. And this was her efforts to get RIMPAC um, stopped before it started. Mm. And what was really interesting is the NATO involvement in RIMPAC. Right. NATO nations, they're not worried about giant war breaks out with China. Guam is going to be targeted. None of those European countries are going to be targeted. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, there were two young people, uh, once again, right in the backyard. And we heard a little bit about RIMPAC, especially if you're watching um, Amy Goodman and Democracy Now. But I don't know how much it broke through on, the, on mainstream media. I just don't. You don't see anything about it. Yeah. And it just, it's huge and aggressive and damaging. And um, if you, if you see, I know there was video of them sinking one of those old ships. I'm thinking, geez, oh man, we got plastic bottles all over the Pacific. And here we are just throwing more, more junk into the ocean. And the impact on the whales in the Pacific has been devastating. I know uh, there was a session on whales, which I have not gotten to see yet. I don't know if you did, but. No, I didn't see it. Uh, last year, they, they 
delved into that quite a bit during the convention. Mm -hmm. How many hundreds of thousands of whales have been killed by these RIMPAC exercises. And, you know, and Tarkov, when we were talking to him last week, he pointed out that the Peace and Planet News has a whole article about whales. Right. So you can go there. Well, moving on, uh, we got to, there was a, a, a really interesting session that talked about the psychology of the people that do this and primarily the men that are aggressive with regard to not only militarism uh, globally, but militarism personally. And um, and these next two clips, uh, first one by Katie Considine, and the next and the one after that by Jen Bud, um, they they get into it. So here's Katie Considine um, talk, talking about the manosphere. So it, uh, when we, talk, we were talking about who like who this is targeting and how uh, they are definitely um, identifying with the loser aspect. Um, the the, the re part of the reason why the manosphere is so is such an effective like pipeline or or pull factor for those in like very much in the far right. Not that manosphere isn't. I, I I would I would call them pretty far right, but that's not the point. They are a a gateway to other um, forms of that ideology, right? Um, and part of it is because they are looking for those uh, particularly men, just one, one of the main ones, uh, who are who feel inadequate or who aren't meeting that ideal of the confident white man uh, uh, caricature, right? They're not meeting that and, and they feel inadequate. And that is the exact type of person that those uh, people in, the, in that sphere want because they can exploit that feeling. Um, and uh, the manosphere is telling them like the problem isn't you you're not wrong. It's that it, it, it's the women. It's uh, feminism is actually the cause of your problems. Um, and someone in the chat said, does Christian nationalism play a role? Uh, I, yeah, I believe it does. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a little bit tangential, tra ta you know what I mean? It's a little bit ta uh, tangential, but uh, it definitely does because it is this fallback to traditional gender roles and this like very strict, uh, uh, hierarchy where men need to be the alpha, need to be the strong one, need to be the forefront and in control. And the same with this, um, uh, uh, with all of that, it's a, it's an enforcement of that hierarchy. Uh, and that's kind of what the manosphere is resting on. And they are using people who feel kind of inadequate, telling them the problem's not you. It is the changing world because it takes this uncertainty that, that people will feel in the changing world. Um, but instead of uh, the people of people who are experiencing this change having to self-reflect and seeing what may, like maybe what biases you're still holding on to, you're being told, no, 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 you are correct. The world is what's wrong. Um, and that's what pulls them into this. And then that's what can get them into a gateway to uh, even darker ideologies. That was Katie Considine. Now, Harvey, uh, I didn't lead in with the context in which he was going to talk about. But can you guess what the context was? <laughs> well, can I know, give you a hint? Give me a hint. <laughs> Military recruitment. Of course. I mean, I thought that was more than the context. <laughs> yeah. So I, I this is what 
this that is was what, exactly what she was talking about. <laughs> yeah, this is what military recruiters are go doing. They're going after and they, they identified folks like this that um, have uh, low esteem, are possibly incels, um, and are ready. Uh, and, and what they're doing is they're giving them permission to blame anybody else. Anybody else it, with their with their videos, with their online recruitment, um, with um, uh, even even with their recruitment tools that you have in fairs. Obviously, you know the recruiting they do at sports events are are directed yeah. to an audience that that would be attracted to that idea because they do not feel confident in that area. Exactly. You know all this manhood stuff. Yeah, be part of our team. And so what happens is when we recruit these people, when actually recruit these people, um, then we get into what Jen Budd is going to talk about. Now, Jen Budd, just to put it in context, she is not part of the military, but she is in uniform uh, or she was in uniform. She was part of security. And the border, at yeah. the border. Right. So- it, you're gonna we're gonna have an introduction we're gonna have an introduction by stephanie atkins and uh, a follow-up so here's here's jen bud everyone on this panel has resisted in a variety of ways uh either by filing for conscientious objector status and the topic uh, was resistance have uh, become whistleblowers um some people are actually still serving jen is a former border security all of your questions about what's going on down south she's got a lot to tell you jen bud slightly different experience uh not the battlefield but actually probably more realistically it is the battlefield uh if you would tell us a little bit about your experience and your transformation please i would say it's a different kind of battlefield for sure but um you know, like everybody else so far has said, it, it was a progression. And 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 I think that, you know, the, the first little things were how they separated the men and women in the beginning of the academy so that the women didn't belong and that we couldn't make it and that we would file fake uh, sexual assault cases against the men so that the border patrol would somehow pass us or something. And, and then, I was raped in the academy by a classmate and they covered it up. And I think for me, and I don't know about everybody else, but when I entered, I was 24. And, and so I think the concept of systemic corruption and abuse is not well taught in, in American culture and, in, and you know, in, in our basic schools and, and so forth. And so it took me a while to understand that this is a system, that it's been built like this, it's designed like this. And then frankly, getting out to the border, I just, you know, I knew a lot about the civil rights movement of the 60s in the South, because that's where I was raised, but I didn't know anything about what was going on on the Southwest border. And I didn't know anything about how unjust a lot of the laws were. So that took a lot of time to, to understand that and as operation gatekeeper came along and we became more and more militarized and less of a uh, 
not that we were ever a humanitarian group, but it just, it's like the, the trainees coming out of the academy were becoming harder, hardened to migrants, um, plights and so forth. And, and the brutality and the death that we constantly saw, and that's not to say that what I went through as an agent was worse than somebody who's crossing the border and dies out there. That's not the case. But at some point, I came to the realization that I'm enforcing laws that are killing people. And I tried to get away from that after a month-long detail in India where it was a very horrific and brutal month where there was a lot of death, a lot of really violent death that I, that I witnessed. And, and then I decided I wanted to, to go into intelligence. I went into intelligence and I thought, okay, here I can do some good. But again, in intelligence, it's like boss of my old station is the one smuggling drugs into the county. And so I go after them and I try and cover it up. So I'm whistleblowing and whistleblowing and whistleblowing. And each time they cover up, cover up, and cover up until finally it gets to the point where they physically threaten my life. And this boss of the station says, you know, we're not going to miss next time when we shoot at you out in the field. And so you either take the promotion and shut your mouth, which they offer me or you try and stay alive again. You made it this night, you're not gonna make it another night. So um, that was kind of the final straw for me. But as far as really coming to terms with my own actions, my own prejudice and my own racism and trying to understand that and what I had, had enforced and done as an agent and contributed to that um, oppression and, and that dehumanization and so forth, um, that took many years and that honestly took a massive suicide attempt and coming to terms uh, with my own actions and being really honest with myself. Before we proceed any further, I just want to take a few seconds and say I'm deeply moved by what you've just shared with us and I can't even begin to understand that what you've experienced and i'm sorry those things happen to you and it takes a lot of courage to talk about that it's okay that those things happen to me they've made them who, who made me who i am today and so it's okay right. thank you there was four three other folks who also talked about their own resistance and they were all um impactful but i thought Jen Bud's experience, especially being part of the border control and border patrol, especially since she's just another lady in uniform, and her experience is probably so typical of women when they put on a uniform. And of course, it was just heart wrenching. And the, you know, and the others, the other three stories were every bit as important. But um, it this one just struck. Yeah, it was. It was really hard hard to even listen to some of that. I know, I know. So um, that leads us to our next one. Uh, we've had the 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 guy in Korea. We've had the ladies crossing. 
We've had uh, Lindsay pointing out what we do, uh, what our military does to the climate. And remember, and, and those folks talking about RIMPAC, there are sailors that are on those ships that are damaging the environment. There are Marines landing on beaches that are damaging the uh, environment, that are killing whales. And so you can't say that once they find out what they did and what they participated in, and they're participating in, you know, in the climate, that it's not going to hurt eventually. And so, Harvey, you pointed out, and I'd listened to it, but you pointed out about the episode on moral injury. Yes, I thought that was uh, just eye-opening for me. I mean, I know we've had shows on moral injury. We've had guests who uh, work closely with uh, veterans suffering from moral injury, but this particular presenter uh, was just uh, so good at just, uh, <clears throat> you know, just kind of dissecting it and, and analyzing it. Uh, this was uh, Chris Antal. He's a staff chaplain at the VA Medical Center there in Philadelphia and uh, works with uh, veterans suffering from moral injury. So I hope you got some of those clips that I sent you. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is that... Um... Moral injury, moral injury is something kind of, uh, it, it's hard to put a finger on until now because he provides us two definitions mm -hmm. based, on, based on studies done by the VA. And I, I think you and I can both identify with, with one of them, maybe with both of them um, to a certain extent. It really, but, really emphasizes the fact that this is has almost nothing in common with PTSD. Yeah. And, and here, Although here's, can be suffering from both, certainly. Right. Here we are. Uh, John, Jonathan Shea being one of the first, a psychiatrist who is, uh, uh, many of you know, wrote uh, Achilles in Vietnam and uh, worked as a clinician in Boston. And he, he defined moral injury as a betrayal of what's right by legitimate authority in a high stakes situation, all three. So it's, it's this idea of being betrayed. And, and that, that's experienced emotionally as resentment. Resentment is the emotional response, the morally, moral emotion related to the experience of, of betrayal. The other, the other definition that, that's out there that was really pioneered by another VA clinician by the name of Brett Litz, who's a psychologist, uh, is um, more based in perpetration. So Brett Litz defined moral injury as perpetrating, failing to prevent or bearing witness to acts that violate core values or beliefs. So I've called moral injury as the inevitable outcome of moral engagement with the harsh reality of war and killing. Um, so that's a focus on the inevitability of it and a focus on moral engagement, which is not a sickness. It's a sign of an 
active conscience. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to be conscientious and live lives that are morally engaged, and we're going to be in contexts where there's war and killing going on, then moral injury is inevitable outcome of that. I'm not saying war is inevitable. I'm saying that this kind of suffering. Um, uh, and so, so related to that is, is um, just the recognition that of, of, of the normalization of appropriate guilt. Um, that um, the absence of guilt uh, in the presence of harming others is a sign of pathology. A sociopath is someone who can inflict pain on others and not feel guilt or remorse. So the presence of guilt is, in, a, in that sense, a beautiful thread that connects us to our, our humanity. Uh, we, we define moral injury as, as the uh, uh, unfair distribution of appropriate moral pain. The unfair distribution of appropriate moral pain. And this definition, if you're familiar with the, the recent book, which I think is, is pretty good, by uh, Robillard and Strasser, uh, called Outsourcing Duty, the Moral Exploitation of the American Soldier. Uh, Robillard and Strasser are both post 9-11 vets who got PhDs and wrote this book about moral exploitation. And so, so basically they're, they're saying in our society, the relationship between citizens and soldiers and of all branches is, is one of exploitation. And of moral exploitation in particular, it's about, they say the basis of moral exploitation is the unfair acquisition of moral responsibility. So in other words, this community, the veteran community, we're holding a moral weight, uh, an, an unfair moral weight that the society, the citizens are avoiding. There's work avoidance going on in the culture, and there's um, an abdicate, almost an abdication of a civic duty to share responsibility for the consequences of the wars we fight and authorize. Uh, so we educate and empower veterans to learn the language and give voice to their testimony of moral injury. And then in the 10th week, we invite the community in for, a, we call it a community healing ceremony. And uh, it happens on our VA property. It happened completely in person before COVID, but we've adapted and now we're able to do hybrid events. Um, and the community includes the family members of the veterans in the group, other veterans, providers, but the larger community, faith leaders, uh, we have a large uh, student population in the Philadelphia area. We've had high school students come in as a class. We've had university students join us. We have a big medical uh, community here, and many of them come and uh, show up for this. Uh, and it's not a spectator event. The veterans at the ceremony give testimony. The community bears witness, and then I lead a uh, ritual of, of confession. It's uh, of where the community shares responsibility and for the harms that are, are done. Uh, so, so this is, uh, there is ritual involved. It, it is a, a ceremonial symbolic in some, some ways, um, but through this ceremony, we're working towards a more equitable distribution of moral pain uh, and, and giving the work back to the community 
and the citizens and the society. So there's a lot to deal with there. But yeah, first, <laughs> your, your moral injury, Harvey. You were on an aircraft carrier. Well, I, I was on an aircraft carrier. I auxiliaries officer. They could not fly those planes and drop those bombs without what my division did. Uh, and I would go out on that hangar deck when we were rearming where these ships come alongside and just these high high you know high line transfers over to us of just pallet after pallet after for hours of these bombs i i all i could think of was where are these bombs going to be you know who are they dropping these on i mean we're we're doing strikes 24 hours a day off the coast of this tiny you know 90 percent rural uh agrarian <laughs> society it just it just made me sick to yeah that you know and it, a similar but different situation where i was because I, I finally came to grips with why i had to walk out of apocalypse now because those helicopters in the early parts of the movie um that destroy a very peaceful village set it on fire where are those helicopters coming from they're coming from my ship because there i was off the coast of, of, of vietnam off the mekong delta sending attack helicopters so you were sending bombers into north vietnam north vietnam and i was sending attack helicopters and you i heard on the radio about this joker uh laughing about killing a farmer's water buffalo what are you doing and you know and the one time our our captain kept bugging he wanted to go lob some shells in on into the jungle wanted to get uh, close and lob some shells and so who had to plot where to lob those shells? There I was with a chart, mm. plotting coordinates. And, you know, another a, a fellow sailor said, I really hope you're getting these right. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, good Lord. So we were going to lob shells into this section. And, and of course, being a youngster and still being uh, snowballed by the american dream uh i was thinking well there must there must be just vc here there that's all there are uh no kids no grandparents no uh, no moms and dads no farmers just vc who are the sons of yeah and brothers and husbands yeah and of course i was wrong Vietnamese people but it you know but it took a while for me to just think what the heck and so I think I told you about the calling cards I saw in the staterooms of these pilots yeah that were these like have gun will travel you know uh, have napalm will travel and 
specializing in strafing and all this stuff, uh, talking about crispy critters. Uh, yeah, there's the uh, sociopaths. Yeah, yeah. All right. There's the sociopaths. You know, I just thought about all the patriotic display that that makes us so nauseated all the time. But the people who have moral injury, what does it do to them? You know, it's, it's you know, fireworks for PTSD is bad enough. But, you know, to see these displays glorifying what these uh, mm -hmm. people who have conscience are, are struggling with, that's abuse. Yeah, that is abuse. I was really interested in his take on what Philadelphia is doing as far as being able to share with the community that I guess were complicit for sending us and for sending anybody into the military these days or, or supporting any of our military interventions or supporting, heck, supporting our military budget. Um, and supporting or, or any politician if not necessarily supporting not doing anything to try to change it or stop it, it. exactly and and that the his the, his idea was to share that moral injury with the community i noticed he never said that it would it, it would cure cure us cure every one of us that's been in the military cure us but at least we could share it. And, and I, I was impressed with how it was ritualized. He even he even used the word confession part of this yeah. clip that uh, I'm sure resonates with Catholics out there. But, That's right. Uh, you know, on some, you know, whether it's ritual or just uh, sharing something with a person you love and trust being honest yeah is, is a necessary step in in any kind of healing and there there it is so that was a that was a very powerful segment and um yeah that that one's going to stick with me for a long time well they're all going to stick with me yeah. so and that was um that was just our little tidbit our little tip of the iceberg from the conference. I do want to end with just some words because the keynote speaker, uh, Veterans for Peace, was really honored to have Reverend Buck, a barber of the Poor People's Campaign. Peace. Here's Reverend Barber. A second critical reality that gives us hope even in the midst of violence. And that, and that inspires us to do work like Veterans for Peace. And that is that the reality that our country has all the way from its origin been a land of powerful people's movements. That war has not had the last word. That death has not had the only word. The killing and unjustified destruction of people has not only had the last word or the only word. The reality is that even in the darkest of times and the most violent of times, movements of poor people and workers and farmers and women 
and men of every race and color and language and national origin and gender and sexual orientation and people of faith and people who have been in war but saw the ravages of war and then became some of the greatest advocates for peace and for justice. Always and in every generation, these movements have risen up, risen up against slavery, risen up against genocide, risen up against militarism, risen up against racism, risen up against xenophobia, risen up against misogyny, risen up against transphobia, risen up against homophobia, risen up against climate destruction, risen up against anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and on and on and on and on. And Veterans of Peace is certainly a part of this grand history. Veterans of Peace is a part of this movement that has never without a witness in this country and in this era. Veterans of Peace. Veterans of Peace have been there even before Veterans of Peace became into being. When the first Poor People's Campaign came together, there were veterans who joined the call of Dr. King against racism, against poverty, against militarism. People who understood that you could not be really against one without being against all three. There's always been a witness. Some of you resisted the draft. Some of you went. But then you came back and you have become some of the strongest allies. And you have such moral authority. And you join the great lineage in society. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible that I read that basically says, God is never without a witness. There's always somebody crying out in the wilderness. There's always somebody that will stand up and say that more war is not, not an answer. There's always somebody that will challenge the injustices. There's always somebody. And I'm glad to be with you and many of you who dare to tell that truth, dare to say what the impact of militarism still is, dare to challenge it, dare to call it out, dare to say what needs to be said, even though it might take history to find and vindicate us because the weapons of war and the instruments of war they have so much control when it comes to the media and the pen and the paper. But you know, in my Bible, I'm told that what God needs is a witness. Not necessarily a witness that's always heard right then. In fact, and because war and those who are part of the machinery of war uh, are so times, sometimes so committed to it and so arrogant in it, they may not hear us. But God told the prophet Ezekiel, say it anyway. Speak the truth anyway. So that at least they will know there's a prophet among them. Say it anyway. Even if you got to go down in the valley of dry bones where people have been hurt and destroyed by war, because you might find in that valley of people hurt and bruised, you just might find the witnesses that are needed for such a time as this. 
So veterans of peace say it anyway. Stand on it anyway. Believe anyway. Speak the truth anyway. That's what we do. Well, that's what we try to do. Speak the truth anyway. That was our that was just a tidbit of the conference, and it was a great conference. Um how do you how do you want to end with a what song would you like to end with? Well, I think we need to end with give peace a chance. All right. Seeking peace. Seeking peace. And while this version is never going to compete with John Lennon and Yoko Ono, uh, it does reflect kind of a unity. It's sung by a conglomeration of uh, musical singers and artists and songwriters. And so... Everybody's talking about Planet Earth Rebirth United Nations Good Relations Space Station Starvation Radiation Salvation Education Liberation Oh! Are we About. Everybody's talking about civil war, revolution, Armageddon, no solution, are we facing Vietnam? We don't want to drop the bomb. All we are saying is give peace a chance, give peace a chance, Has to stop HIV, AZD, and new kids dance on MTV with toxic waste dumps in the sea. sea, sea. From the sun, Middle East, crazy beast, rock and roll to sing for peace. All we got to say.